0: right, this morning again, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18, the wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Now just again, a brief review, the wicked, the evil, the man who does wrong, does, works, a a work that has the appearance of something with substance, but it's empty. It's, a, it's an illusion. It's really not something that has any long-range value. But to him that soweth righteousness, there is a true, a, a solid, a secure reward. We're talking a little bit about this matter of reward last week, The word for reward, saker, means hire, wages, gain. It's uh, used in terms of hiring skilled workers uh, for a particular job. It's used for hiring counselors for advice. It's used for hiring soldiers to help deliver a city. It's uh, the word that was used uh, concerning Balaam when he was hired uh, to uh, curse Israel. And, of course, God... Changed his mind, and uh, the particular form uh, that's used here is um, is really rather unique, and it it speaks of a working class of people, and the reward or the payment that they receive. Now there are a number of of real good illustrations in Scripture uh, concerning the the matter of reward. Uh, For instance, over in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 6, you have the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, and uh, verse 22, it begins, Thus did Noah. Now Noah did the righteous thing or the right thing because God had commanded him to... Um, to do this, to build the ark, thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded, so did he. And the Lord said unto Noah, come down all the house into the ark, for uh, thee have I seen righteousness before me in this generation, a wicked generation. But what's God see? God sees his righteousness, and of every clean beast you shall take into the ark, and you know that part of the story. And then it says, For yet seven days, and I cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every every living thing that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And here again, key words, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. He did the righteous thing, or the right thing, the thing that God told him to do. You go on and you read the rest of that chapter, and it gives us the substance of the reward that the Lord gave to him. The Lord spared him. All flesh died that moved on the face of the earth, except for Noah and his family, except for those in the ark. And that, of course, included the animals that he preserved as well. And the uh, the Lord's reward in this particular case was a reward of granting him grace, granting him life. Now, this is mentioned over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 gives just a little different perspective on it, where it says, <clears throat> "By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, it's, uh, it's believed that previous to the uh, uh, the the time of the flood, uh, that the earth was was covered with some kind of a canopy, uh, and." Uh, that there had never been rain on the earth, but rather, uh, there's a hint of this in, the, in Genesis that there was, uh, there was a sort of a heavy dew that came every night within the range of this canopy. Uh, they were protected from the ultraviolet rays and all of that, and that the earth was watered from beneath rather than from above. And uh, uh, at the time of the flood, this was broken open, so that the whole. Uh, the, the, all of the water could pour down from the heavens. And you can imagine, if, you, if, if the scientists that have indicated that this is the case, if they're correct, you can imagine how difficult it was to go running around saying, there's going to be a flood. There's going to be rain from heaven. And it's going to, it's going to come up on the ground. They've never seen a mud puddle, you know, let alone a flood. And uh, so Noah, when he was told to build the ark, built the ark in, in not in any sense using sight. No one had ever built a boat that size. No one, no one ever had had uh, seen rain. I mean, you know, right now, if you told, if you told the people in, uh, uh, out in uh, Milpitas and uh, Alviso that next year... They're going to have a worse flood than this year. Uh, they probably start building boats, you know, uh, because they've seen a flood. But in Noah's time, it was so highly unusual that, uh, uh, he ne- you know, people never dreamed of such a thing. So he did this according to faith. There's one reason, and one reason only, why Noah built an ark. It's because God told him to. See? But now look at what happened. Noah, being warned of God of things and not seen as yet, moved with fear, with the awe of God, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world, the negative aspect of it, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The reward that Abraham received was a was the same reward that a person receives today when he puts his trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the imputed righteousness of God, so that he had a right standing with God. God saw what he did and reckoned it to be an act of faith whereby he could impute righteousness to him. Now that is a reward. Look a little further uh, at Abraham We won't turn to the Old Testament text. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, it's talking about Abraham. And it says in verse 13, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. God promised. Abraham believed him. Abraham believed him to the place that he patiently waited, and the reward, the sure reward that he got was the thing that God promised God gave to him. Look at Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter thirty-seven. Now, in Genesis thirty-seven, you have the the story of Joseph, and uh, you know that in chapter thirty-seven, Joseph dreamed a couple of dreams indicating that he was going to uh, going to rule over them, and uh, he was. Taken by his brothers, cast into a pit, sold into Egypt, and uh, in chapter 40, or 39, I should say, he's faced with temptation. He did the righteous thing, he went to jail for it. All of these things just seemingly backfiring on him. Nothing seems to be going right. And yet, uh, in prison, he was a model prisoner and uh, was given the responsibility of uh, trustee, and uh, he, he asked uh, one of the men who was going to be restored to the favor of the king to remember him, and he was forgotten. And uh, all of this led up to the fact that uh, Joseph eventually, in chapter 40, was remembered by the chief butler, and uh, it was just at the right time, the, the pharaoh... Uh, was fascinated with the fact he could interpret a dream he had had a dream of his own and had no interpretation for it. Joseph appeared before him and explained that he had uh, that, that there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine if they prepared during the seven years of plenty, then during the seven years of famine, uh, they would be able to uh, survive and, and become the breadbasket of the world and all of this came to pass and you know that Uh, Joseph ultimately was reconciled with his uh, brethren, and uh, uh, God blessed them until long after Joseph's death. Now, in Psalm 37, uh, there is a relationship here. Psalm 37, beginning at verse 4, It says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy justice as the noonday. That's a beautiful picture, really, of Joseph. Because God ultimately vindicated him for doing the right thing. It was a whole series of right things that he did. And ultimately, he was rewarded. And I'm sure that Joseph is an old man. If you were to say to him, Joseph, you know, you it was pretty rough going down in that pit. Pretty rough being sold down into Egypt. Really pretty rough when uh, Potiphar's wife uh, lied about you and you were thrown down into prison. That's a lot of going down for you. Was it worth it? And he would say... Absolutely. I mean, how often can a man rise from that series of downward steps to a place of prominence like Joseph did? And yet, it's quite characteristic of people in the Word of God who are humbled and humbled and humbled. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. There is a certainty of reward. When you do the right thing, there is an emptiness of reward when you do the wrong thing. And the wrong thing often seems more expedient than the right thing. And yet, is it? Of course not. Because the, the thing that really is the, uh, uh, adds the score up is the bottom line, right? It's the way it's going to end. There's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. You cannot go your own way, do your own thing, do the expedient thing, the wrong thing, but the expedient thing, and expect that the gain you receive from it is going to have any lasting value at all. One of the problems that we have in our day and age is so much is tied into the material. And God wants to get our focus off of the material. If you, if you are simply going to work today to earn a living, then that is going to be like a, putting your, your, your wages, as Jeremiah said, putting your wages in a bag with holes. But you go to work with the idea in mind that you <laughs> want to be the best employee you can be because you want to glorify God, because you want to live for Him, and that job is something that God is giving you as a specific ministry, and you go there not as a man pleaser, not as one who's, who's just doing something so others can see him, but you're going there as a minister of God to do whatever you do, and you do it knowing that you serve the Lord Christ, and therefore you do a better job than anyone else. You give that extra mile. People say, What are you trying to do cozy up to the boss the way you're working say not the boss you think i'm serving my lord and you do better because you're serving him and you see the reward that you receive in terms of a paycheck or even in terms of promotion is a relatively small thing compared to the reward you receive from your real boss he will reward righteousness it's a sure thing you can count on it and you can extend that idea of reward clear into eternity because many times god does not reward us here he doesn't reward us now and see we're so locked into the fact that if we don't get it now if i don't get it before retirement what good's it going to do me but i'll tell you something again you can you could starve to death during retirement and how long's your retirement going to be? A few years. But I'll tell you, what kind of a reward are you going to have in heaven? You're going to have all eternity there, and that's forever. You see, we just can't lock ourselves into that kind of thinking, but God wants us to again and again and again scripture comes back to the fact that unless you're able to take the long look you're never going to you're never going to have a proper perspective on what you do in life unless you can see eternity and realize that that's forever you see and i you know you deal with young people and it's it's a major problem you know some sometimes young people can can only see uh, as far as the uh, the next, next semester, sometimes they can't even see that far, you know, let alone eternity. And the thing you've got to do is you've got to teach them, you've got to train them that what they see right now and what they see in terms even the duration of their life is not the most important thing. The thing that matters is living for eternity and, and realizing that that's where the real action is. And they want to have fun now. And they want to get it now because they're afraid if they don't get it now, they they won't get it. I'll tell you something. If you do the right thing because it's right, and because God wants you to do it out of obedience to Him, then you're going to be richly rewarded in eternity. And many times you'll also be rewarded here. Look at uh, Luke chapter 2. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was Righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, Then he took him up in his arms, and blessed God, and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now the desire of this man would, by the world's standards, seem to be a very shallow and empty thing. Here's a man who is living for only one thing, to see the Messiah. And as far as he's concerned, when he's done that, he can die. See. Now, if you don't understand and appreciate who the Messiah is, if you don't really understand all that's involved in 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 uh, a man who has who is devout, a man who is righteous, a man who loves the Lord, a man who wants God God's best, a man who is non-materialistic, if you don't understand that, you won't understand Simeon. Because here's a man who, when he sees a little baby child, Presented to him there in the temple, he's okay, Lord, I'm happy. And how many people today would be content to have their life goal be to let my eyes view one baby born? See? But if it's the right baby, that's a righteous kind of a desire. What did God do? God gave him his desire, God allowed him to see Christ. And fulfill all of his dreams, all of his hopes. His whole life had been centered around the worship of God and with a desire, as all Israel, Israelites, true Israelites, uh, desired to see the Messiah. And he says, Now I can die. Could you be content with something as simple as that? Over in the book of uh, Lamentations. When was the last time you read anything from Lamentations? Lamentations chapter 3. Right after the text that that speaks of uh, the Lord's faithfulness. Uh, verse 22, it says, it is because the Lord's mercies were not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Have anybody read anything from Lamentations? That's probably what you read, right? Okay? But now, look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion. Now, the word portion is the idea of an inheritance, a reward. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto those who wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Now that's all that Simeon did, was listen to the words of Jeremiah here when he was saying it's good for a man to patiently wait for the salvation of the Lord, Simeon said, I can die now. I've seen his salvation. Now Christ is still a baby. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He hasn't risen from the dead yet. At Simeon's content, he has, his eyes have beheld the one that would bring salvation to Israel. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1. And verse 12, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have behaved ourselves in the world and more abundantly toward you paul says i've lived the life of godliness before you and that in itself is a reward it brings me joy just to know that my life has counted for the lord jesus christ second timothy then second timothy chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 Paul could say this. I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. But now notice this. And not to me only, but unto all them who love his appearing. What does it mean to love Christ's appearing? It means to so order your life that should Jesus Christ come today, you wouldn't be ashamed. You wouldn't say, Hold it, Lord, wait a minute, hold it, I'm not quite ready. You would have no earthly ties that you would regret leaving behind. No earthly things. You know, Lot's wife, when they were leaving Sodom, Lot's wife left Sodom because her husband insisted that she go. But she left her heart back there. She left her heart back there. And what happened? She turned to a pillar of salt. And you know, there, there there's a sense in which there are people today who ha- who look back longingly at the things of the world. That's where their heart is. And whereas the Scripture doesn't say that when the rapture takes place and you're looking back longingly you're going to turn to a pillar of salt, I'll tell you this, you're going to be ashamed of His coming if you have those kinds of values. There's There's such a shallow conception of the glory of heaven and what it is to be in the presence of God, such a shallow conception. I had a gal tell me one time, she said, well, you know, I I really want the Lord to come, but I, oh, this is silly, she said, but I, I really want to finish my silverware set first. Imagine such a dumb thing. But you see, that's her thing. What's yours? What plans do you have today that the, that the coming of Christ would interrupt and your heart would kind of say, Oh, now? It's going to be in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. You're not going to have too long to linger. All right? But if, if there was that time period just before He lifted you up, what would your heart say? oh, I just got that new car. I'll never be able to drive it. Or, man, I was going to get married next week. See? Listen, I'll tell you, there is not a single plan on earth or a single material thing that is going to be worth two hoots at the moment of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Is going to compare with that and when we come into the presence of his glory and spend all of eternity with him we'll soon realize how cheap everything is here but the problem is while we're here we don't see it that way and we think oh no i've worked all these years for my retirement and now i'm going to miss all those retirement checks i've laid up all of this in, in, uh, in terms of treasure in the bank. I've been saving for this vacation for so long I'll never be able to take it. See? Christ warned by using the illustration of the rich fool. He warns us not to get too tied down to things material. The rich fool, of course, was a farmer. And he said, uh, well, if I get more crop than my buildings can handle, I'll build new buildings. And then when they're full, I'll build some more. And and after all is said and done, when I've got all my barns full and they're overflowing with grain, then I'm going to say, soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. A Pretty good perspective, right? No. Christ says, thou fool, this night your soul is going to be required of you. And I, I, I think, you know, in terms of a a guy like Joe Mullally, you know, who lived for Jesus Christ with all the gusto in the world and uh, made a lot of sacrifices just so that he could minister to people. And he might have... Uh, he might have laid up a great treasure on earth if he'd gone another route. And he moved, he moved up into the Concord area just simply because he had unsaved relatives up there, and he says, "Hey, I got a minister to him. I got a responsibility." Boy, he led a whole slug of them to the Lord, you know, and including his own father before he died. And, you know, Joe drops dead a relatively young man. And you say, oh, what a waste. Was it? No, no, he finished his course. As I have said to people, if a man's life is measured not by the duration of his life, but by the donation of his life, then Joe Malali lived a life to the full. See? How about you? How about your life? I I just ask you, if you had an appointment with death by the end of this week, what really have you done for Jesus Christ? How much have you focused on the material things of life? How much have you focused upon the spiritual things that count for eternity? How much treasure have you laid up in eternity? How much treasure have you left here? was a rich man that died and they said oh my he was terribly rich how much did he leave and someone said all of it all of it how about you what would you leave all of it how wonderful it would be if somebody would say of you would say of me should I die today say well you know something the impact of that life is going to have eternal results rather than just say wow he built a fortune or he 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 did this in a worldly sense well turn with me to hosea hosea chapter 10 I'll tell you guys i if i don't do anything else in life if I can help a few people gain an eternal perspective, it'll be worth it. We could only come to that place where we, where we have an eternal perspective in everything we do. Verse 12 of Hosea 10 says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Now notice, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because I distrust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. Now notice there's such a contrast here. Here's your choice. Here are your options, guys. Sow to yourselves in righteousness or plow wickedness? Reap in mercy or reap iniquity? Break up your fallow ground. Let God do His thing in your life so that He can replace whatever has been there all the clods in your life to replace it with righteousness or you'll eat the fruit of lies because you've trusted your own way. Lean not unto your own understanding and all your ways know Him and He will direct your paths. I think that One of the great things that you have to ask yourself before you decide what to do with your time and energy is, how will this enhance my knowledge of God? How will this glorify Him? And how will this better serve the purpose that God has for my life? Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, talking about verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting, and let us not be weary in well doing. Now notice here's the reward for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. James chapter three. James chapter three. Verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them or for them that make peace. The fruit of righteousness. The sure reward. One more. Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Verse 8. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity or emptiness, and the rod of his anger shall fail. Now, these last several verses all talked about sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. And the crop corresponds to the seed, and the reward corresponds to the deed. You do the wrong thing, and it's going to bear fruit. And the fruit may have an appearance, a value. In fact, the world may acclaim it, and the world may say, Wow, look what happened to him. Look what he got. But I'll tell you something, it's empty. On the other hand, you sow righteousness by doing the right thing what happens? There's a reward. There's there's a crop that you'll reap, and that crop is a sure thing. You can bet your life on that, because God has promised that the righteous have a sure, sure reward. You read in the paper the other day of uh, about the, the preacher down in Florida who, who uh, was pushing drugs, pushing cocaine, getting rich on the side, pushing cocaine. You, you look at that and you say, you know, everything on the outside seemed as, as though the man, the man uh, was uh, an evangelical, uh, uh, was, was uh, a leader in the community, an upright man, all of that. And then they all of a sudden find out that he's got this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of in existence. And I, I just hang my head in shame when I see a thing like that. You ask yourself, what in the world could have ever happened to a guy like that? You know, Satan blinded his eyes to the place that he thought that there was some kind of, a, of an earthly reward that was worth forfeiting all of the opportunity of heaven. And, you know, a man like that, what, what happens is simply a loss of perspective. There's no way that a person can do that as long as he recognizes that the real action is in eternity. And that's the kind of thing the man would preach, obviously. And yet at the same time, in his own life, he didn't believe it. He could convince other people of it. He couldn't convince himself. It's a tragic thing. Whenever you see something like that, you just realize that it can happen to anybody if Satan is successful in getting him to see the things that are seen rather than the eternal things. That's all it takes. I'll tell you, some people live on a dangerous edge. All their life they live that way. Because they. They kind of, in the back of their mind, are thinking about eternity. They want to get to heaven. But all the time, their focus is on the earth. As long as that happens, Satan's got you. And he can twist you and turn you and wrap you around his little finger as long as you're looking there. And God will bring into your life things that will cause you to to look away to eternal things. One of the things you know he can do, he can strip you right down to nothing now you got nothing and now you you, you've got to make a choice you can either begin to see in the light of your being stripped to nothing you can begin to see how important and valuable eternal things are and begin to to focus on those things or you can become more selfish and more self-centered than ever trying to get back what you've lost well you've got to be careful it's a dangerous business, but remember that Satan's illusions are very convincing, but there's nothing of any real value. You know, people talk about real estate because real property is supposed to have real value. Guess what? The whole thing's going to go up in smoke. All of it. There's nothing real about real estate. <clears throat> I'll tell you where the real estate is. It's in glory. And I'd far rather have a little apartment there than have a mansion here simply because these things are temporary. Okay, You may have heard me tell the story of Jonathan Goforth there in China where all their worldly possessions were in a little hut Jonathan Goforth, when he went to China, insisted that he should dress like the Chinese as well as talk the language like the Chinese. He spoke it as well as the native uh, by the time he finished his ministry. And uh, so he, and he lived like the Chinese. And in the particular province where they were, uh, they, they lived in just little huts. So he lived in a little hut. And uh, at the end of or one night they woke up to the crackling of flames and their hut was on fire. They barely got out with their lives. And Rosalind Goforth was just a little gal about, yeah, hi. And, uh, And Jonathan Goforth was a skinny rail, about six foot four. And he reached down, put his arm around Rosalind's shoulders, and she was crying as everything they owned went up in smoke. Everything, every worldly possession they had, and he patted her on the shoulder and said, "Honey, they're only things. They're only things." And Rosalind Goforth, in one of her books, reminds us of that very thing: that the things that they really had were the Christians that had come to Christ, and the and the the uh, the things of uh, that that. Really mattered like friendships and and uh, their love for the Lord and the whole eternal value and she says she says that that at that time, suddenly it came home, just how temporal the things of the world are, everything up in smoke, and yet the things that really mattered flames couldn't touch them. let's keep that in mind in everything that we do now. Let's get started a little bit on verse 19. Verse 19 says, As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. Now can you see that in this particular case we're, we're, we're coupling together a couple of thoughts. The wicked worketh a deceitful work, Him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. That's speaking in terms of temporal values as opposed to eternal values. But now we're talking about life and death. But the perspective is the same. People talk about, I want to really live. You want to really live, you'll live for Christ. That's where the real life is. The Apostle Paul had it right when he said, for to me to live is Christ. And to die, more of Christ die is gain. So as righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. Now, the word as, that in the King James here, is not as in the sense of a conjunction, a comparative, or an adverb, but rather the Hebrew word is the word ken, or keen, actually, which means... Genuine, true, veritable, honest. It's not just a conjunction here as it would appear in the English, but rather the idea of value. And uh, he who is of genuine righteousness, valuable, the valuable righteousness, the true righteousness. New American Standard Bible uh, therefore translates it, he who is steadfast, in righteousness. And it all comes from that little word, keen. Right not only gives a true reward, but it also delivers from death. Isaiah chapter uh, 3 and verse 10. Isaiah 3, 10. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with him. For, he shall, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. You do something, you're going to eat the fruit of it. You do the right thing, you'll eat the fruit of righteousness. You do the wrong thing, you're going to eat the fruit of, of wickedness. As clear as can be. And all of our conduct leads one of two directions. Either life or death. Some things work life, and some things work death. So what we want is to have this genuine, this true righteousness, the kind of righteousness which is based on the character of God himself. Now, uh, that little word that we have here, I want to give you a uh, uh, some other uses of it, the way it's used. It, it's rather enlightening. Uh, Exodus chapter 10 Verse 29, it says this, Moses said, Thou hast spoken well. There's our word, keen. Thou hast spoken well. Well is the word. I will see thy face no more. Uh, See thy face again no more. Uh, He's talking there with Pharaoh, and he's saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you have spoken honestly. One of the few honest things that he did, but he spoke honestly. Honestly. Uh, when he said, I don't want to see your face anymore uh, lest you die. And Moses said, You spoke honestly. I'm not going to see your face anymore. And uh, uh, he didn't, did he? But uh, in any event, that's, that's how that word is used there. It's used in a series of, of verses over in Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42, um, in verse 11 here's this again back to joseph but joseph's brothers you know are uh, you know they were really scoundrels uh genesis 38 tells us a little bit of of the kind of thing that happened during the years that that uh, joseph was down there in egypt now keep in mind uh, that uh the seven years of famine he's been there that whole time he's been there seven years for sure How many years transpired previous to that were not given an exact count, so you can't be sure, but it was a number of years. He probably has been down there, you know, uh, uh, changed from a teenager to a middle-aged man during those years, and uh, here these fellows come back, and, and God has tempered their hearts somewhat, but you've got to picture the humor of this. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who Joseph is. And uh, uh, Joseph does some little stunts, like putting the money back in their, their, their sacks of grain and sending them on their way. And uh, in s- taking one of the brothers and putting him in, in uh, uh, house arrest, under house arrest, uh, so that they guarantee they'll bring their younger brother back. He wants to see how they treat the younger brother and all of this. Well, here, they're just going through all of this, and here's what they say. Now look at verse 11, first of all. This is Genesis chapter 42. We are all one man's sons, correct? We are all we are true men. There's the word keen. We are honest men. Now you never found anybody. I mean, can, you got to trust his face, right? Now here Joseph is looking at him. He knows who they are. And when he knew them, they couldn't really honestly make that claim. They say, we are true men, thy servants, and no spies. Then to go down to verse 19. If you be true men, (laughs) let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. In other words, that's where they're asking for one of them to stay back. Then verse 31. And we said unto him, we are true men. Now they're talking to their father, who also knows better. But that's what they told I can imagine old Jacob saying, Why did you tell him that? (laughs) What if he finds out what you're really like? Okay, then look at verse 33. And the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, Hereby shall I know that you are true men. And then verse 34, And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that you are no spies, but you are true men. Now in each case, that's this word. So you can kind of get the gist of how that's, that's being, uh, being used there. Over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter uh, 16, Isaiah 16, and verse 6. <laughs> we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Now there's the negative use of that same word. Not so, not be so, not be uh, uh, true, not be um, uh, in in actual fact. Um, Jeremiah does the same thing in that negative aspect of that same word. Verse uh, chapter forty-eight, verse thirty. I know his wrath, saith the Lord, but it shall not be so. It shall not be verified. Uh, That's the idea. His lies shall not uh, shall uh, not so affect it. There's the there's that introductory word that you have here in our verse. It's describing actually the righteousness rather than just connecting the verses. It it's making here a distinction between a supposed righteousness which is in the sight of God no righteousness at all and the kind of righteousness that is in keeping with God's own character. We talked about relative righteousness and self-righteousness and all of that in the past and and you just have to realize that God wants in this particular verse to make very, very clear He's not talking about some man-made righteousness. He's talking about true righteousness, honest righteousness, the kind of righteousness that you can hold up and compare to the very character of God himself. It's not a comparison between you and me. You're better than I am, therefore you're righteous and I'm not. It's not that. It's God is righteous. And this man's life is brought into comparison with God's righteousness. And from the New Testament we know that the only righteousness that can have That sterling quality is an imputed righteousness which comes by faith. Your righteousness could never achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, you're dependent upon God bestowing righteousness upon you. And the the marvelous thing is this, that that, uh, B.C., before Christ, you had a relative righteousness. You had self-righteousness. And none of that could avail with God. But A.C., after Christ, or some people say B.A., born again, you have imputed righteousness. How? But that's not all. God affects in your life a new change. Over here, you're dead in trespasses and sins. Here, you have life. And how do we have life? Man is a tripart being, that is, he was created that way, with a body, soul, and spirit, okay? Now what happens is that when man sinned, man died. Scripture says man died, but man still had a body that was alive, and he still had a soul that was alive, his mind, emotions, and will. So what died? Well, the only thing that died was his spirit. He is spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. Okay, and so when, when, a man is a man in this condition, can't respond to the spiritual at all. Did you know that? That's why it's totally necessary for the Spirit of God to actually invade the person and bring conviction. All of, all conviction comes from the Spirit to the soul and the body. And the Holy Spirit deals with men. Now let me say that in the soul there is what we call self-consciousness. And self-consciousness gives us an awareness of God. But there's no life there, no ability to respond apart from the ministry of the Spirit of God. But when a person comes becomes conscious of God's existence, conscious of God's work, conscious of the work of Jesus Christ, hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit then acts as a human spirit in the person so that he's convinced in his mind, emotions, and will to respond to God. When he responds to God, this part of him comes alive. And the thing that makes it alive is the Spirit of God indwelling him. God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in the Spirit and then there's a lifelong, response, a lifelong task of the Spirit of God continuing to influence the soul and the body of the individual. That's why the Scripture says we're not our own, we're bought with a price. We are, we, that the Spirit of God, that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in us. So the Spirit of God puts up His control center in the human spirit. And that's what makes the Spirit alive. And then, as the Spirit of God controls the soul and the body, the soul and the body become capable of divine good. That is divine righteousness. So Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God, and when I do something, I don't really do it. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ, in the person of the Spirit of God, lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As long as I'm trusting the Spirit of God to work through my life, now I'm pr- producing what we call practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. righteousness. Call it plus righteousness. Here, all this is minus righteousness. This is plus righteousness. It's the real thing. It's the genuine thing. It's the secure thing. See? And it, somehow or another, we've got to lay hold of this because the Scripture speaks not only of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but particularly in the book of Proverbs, it is referring often to the, to the uh, practical righteousness that is produced from a life. And here, that's what it's talking about. So you see, it's not only the imputed righteousness of Christ, which gives me a standing with God, but then He produces righteousness through my life. And that's what we're talking about in the book of Proverbs when we're talking about righteousness. God wants us, God wants us to have that kind of righteousness that is genuine, that is real, that is, that is honest and honorable the kind of righteousness that God himself has. So he produces through our life his own righteousness. A man is capable of doing the righteousness of God, not in his own strength, but in the power of the Spirit of God. Well, we'll come back to this next week. Father, thank you for what you're able to teach us. Give us now just a good day, a rich and full day, as we live for you in righteousness we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Have a good day, men.